I had this feeling in 2017 and certainly in the 2018 election and then watching what was going on recently that there has been somewhat of a democratic awakening among the American people. And that's a healthy thing. On the other hand, there's been a lot of damage to institutions and norms. And when norms, for example, are shattered, they are not easily brought back. When institutions are broken, they are not easily restored. So I think that there is a lot of serious damage that we can be talking about. But also, I think voting turnout, if people can vote, will be very high. It's a big if with the epidemic going on. But if they can vote, I think voting turnout will be very high. And I think that's always a healthy sign for democracy. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, recording from locations around the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to the season finale of Democracy Works. I was going to say, I was trying to think of what season we're on, but I don't even remember. Time flies when you're having fun. And, uh, it feels like kind of an endless season, this pandemic It has been year. an endless season, yeah. Um, yeah, we started this this current year talking about things like primaries and impeachments, and all that stuff seems so long ago now. But uh, we've done a lot of great work this season, been able to keep up with what's happening in the world. And uh, we are going to end this season before the summer, as we did last year, with some questions from our listeners. And we got some great ones that came in. I'm excited to see what you guys think, and uh, hopefully get some answers that are equally as good as the questions. Well, all right. We have not seen these questions. So we are, (laughs) we we are coming at you fresh. Yeah. Without any preparation whatsoever. Right. And it may be all too obvious that that's true. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're going to start with one. Uh, This one actually originated in a Twitter thread. um, Not long after our episode with Charles Barrio on federalism. We've been talking a lot about federalism this season uh, as it relates to COVID-19 and the shutdowns and the reopening. And we may see some of that come into play here with police reform and these types of things moving forward. But this question was trying to understand, or this listener posited there was a disconnect between federalism as a concept and the reference to the federal government. So we think about federal government as being the national government, or they're sort of referred to synonymously, but federalism really refers more to the power that individual states have. And so I'm just wondering where the the kind of origins of both of those terms and why there's maybe such that disconnect. Yeah, I think more than just being about the powers that the states have, federalism has to do with the fact that sovereignty runs across two levels of government. The federal government, the national government is sovereign over the people and the state governments are sovereign over the people. City governments are actually considered creatures of the state. They have no constitutional role. So while they're part of federalism, They're not included within the constitutional designation of responsibilities. But a lot of people do get confused about that, don't they? About the idea that the federal government and federalism, I don't know exactly where it comes from, but uh, I do know that the framers defending the constitution refer to themselves as the federalists. Yeah, yeah, that's actually what I was thinking is that and I they think, were in favor of a stronger national government. You know, the big argument, the big fight over the the new constitution was between 
the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. And the old line in politics is, if you're explaining, you're losing, right? And so the Anti-Federalists really were the Federalists, the ones who wanted to maintain this confederation of states and make a national government very limited, whereas the Federalists wanted a stronger national government. And so the Federalists spun their way of explaining this in a way that made it more palatable to people in the in the new nation. And I don't know, but my, my argument would be that to call it the federal government is, is just a legacy of that very early frame, right? I mean, it is the national government, but we don't call it that. We call it the federal government. Yeah, that's right. And then federalism also refers, sometimes people were technically used the term intergovernmental relations, uh, but it refers as well to the to the type of relationship that exists among different levels of government. And I mean, part of our conversation with Barrio and our conversations about federalism generally had to do with the fact that the national government, in the case of the COVID response, had kind of stepped back mm-hmm. uh, and allowed the states to, to play the dominant role. And so that's the kind of federalism that's developed around COVID. We could have envisioned a very different type of federalism. Well, sure. But I mean, the broader and more fundamental point you're making is that when you set up a national government and state government, you are presuming and even institutionalizing a fight over whose sovereignty is operative and how you play out these responsibilities and privileges associated with either government. And that's by design, right? It makes it more inefficient. It makes it far more complicated, but that's written into the American DNA. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think that about yeah. covers it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So great. Well, that was helpful to me, hopefully to our listener that asked that question as well. It wasn't Mario, um, was it? No, it was not. <laughs> if that's we're going to have to rethink our guest format. If that's right. Right. <laughs> so kind of another foundational type of question that came in, you know, we also talk a lot on the show about institutions and particularly the, the erosion of institutions. We kind of lump norms and, and institutions together. We've, I think, pretty explicitly defined what a norm is, is something that's practiced over the years or decades or what have you, but not ever formally codified into law. But we haven't, I don't think, spent as much time on talking about what an institution is. And so one listener asked about that. Is there a, a particular definition in political science or, or elsewhere? Or is it just one of those kind of things where you know it when you see it? That's a Michael Berkman question, if ever I heard one. When I use the terminology institution, I'm referring to some different things. So I might be talking about what we think of as governmental organizations of different types, but I might also be referring to a standard operating procedures or rules of the game. You know, within political science, we sometimes distinguish between institutions and behavior, where behavior has to do with how individuals act politically or respond politically or attitudinally think politically, but that institutions are the processes, the procedures, the organizations of politics. I guess I would, uh, that's probably right from a political science point of view, um, but, so. but, yeah, <laughs> but, I, but it's not how I think about it. I would argue that institutions are bodies of governmental authority or oversight 
or maybe even broader groups associated with politics that have both an historical standing and also some kind of standing within the political organization itself. So CIA is an institution. The DNC is an institution. Right. Judicial review is an institution, even though that's not exactly a but it's it's a process that's been established and that has an operating role. Yeah, that's the key piece of it that broadens it out from just organizations. So, I mean, elections are institutions as well. Right. right. So if you just refer to organizations, which I agree with you, I mean, the history of them, how they're set up. Those are all the kinds of critical questions we ask in an institutional analysis. You know, why do we have the outcomes that we have out of Congress? Well, we're going to look at the institution and we're going to look at its practices. We're going to look at its organization. We're going to look at its committee structure. We're going to look at its power distribution. And that all helps us understand the outcomes that we might get out of that governmental body. But the notion of an institution has to be broader than just referring to the body of Congress. It has to do with how it operates and it can extend beyond that into other kinds of practices within politics. No, I think that's right. And I also think that in order to answer the question, we have to acknowledge that the borders around this concept are fuzzy, right? And sure. you know, and that's true of any concept, right? If you talk about what's a sport and what's a game, finding where that line is, it's just not there, right? And so if you're thinking about institutions, you just get enough of a seat of the pants knowledge of that's an institution that isn't, that you basically develop that concept in your mind. And I take the point that we should be better at not just assuming everyone else has the same seat of the pants that we do. I mean, I think it's worth kind of making those definitions. So, Mm -hmm. Right. Well, great. Well, we're knocking out these definitions here. This is so far so good. So as we get closer to the election in November, it seems that President Trump is going to implement or stick to some of the same tactics he used in 2016, you know, namely using media attention to mobilize viewers. So the question is, what do you guys think about the paradox of the media as this listener described it? Should the media still focus heavily on Trump's antics, such as several weeks ago when he revealed he was taking hydrochloroquine, things like that, or focus more strictly on COVID-19 and the candidates to the extent that you can separate them out from some of these crazier tactics and behaviors? Mm-hmm. All right. I think that the media has an extremely difficult job and has done mostly not as great a job as I would have hoped they had addressing this completely new political animal, right? Trump does not behave in most ways. He does not behave like a typical president. And yet the coverage has not changed with that new animal. And part of that is just institutional legacy, inertia. And part of it is the built up respect that the press is supposed to have for the president. I do think that if the president says, I'm taking this unscientific medicine, that has to be news and they have to cover that. But I do think that when the president is saying something that is false, you don't say that in a way that downplays that lie or downplays that falsehood. I think the media's job is to report the truth. And if the president is saying something that is false and is repeating it for the seventh time, then either he is indifferent to the truth 
or he's lying. And, yeah. and I think it is incumbent upon the media to say that. And so I think they should be doing a better job of showing their fealty first and foremost to the truth than they are to the office of the president. But I don't underestimate the difficulty associated with doing that. Yeah, I, I largely agree with that. I mean, I do think the media has made some changes and they're more willing than they used to be to actually call something a lie at the beginning of this. They never would. I agree uh, with that. But I think the bigger issue here is that they ought to be thinking more creatively about how to give some equal time to Joe Biden. So those daily press conferences, now I don't know if maybe the Biden team didn't want it, and that's very possible. But just, for example, when he was getting two and a half, three hours a day, for those coronavirus press conferences that had clearly turned into campaign events, clearly were campaign events, which is not actually even supposed to happen at the White House. But nonetheless, I thought they should have been going to Joe Biden and say, do you want half an hour of time to speak? Something along mm. those lines. I think right. that's fair. I actually want to stick up for the media again. I mean, I consider myself a fairly reasonable, easygoing guy, but some of the attacks that Trump has made on reporters. I don't understand how these people don't lose their temper. <laughs> I know it's it's be, be completely unprofessional, but they're so personal and they're so unjustified. But, but that's why they don't lose their, their temper. And that's what I think is so often lost in the response to his attacks on them. They are professionals. Yes, they, I agree with that. I mean, many of them, but certainly the ones that make it to the White House press conferences. I'm not right. talking about OAN, but the real media sources that are there they are professionals. Mm -hmm. and they're not treated like they're professionals. No, on the but contrary. They're behaving, they're behaving like they are. Yeah. And, and, and they come off, I mean, at least from a, just a professionalism standpoint, much better than the president. I don't see how you can argue that point. But well, in any case, well, Jenna, what do you think of that? You're the I was going to say, <laughs> you're, you're yeah. a journalism representative. Yeah. No, you I mean, I was, as you're saying about these attacks, I mean, we are seeing some of these attacks now with protests going on, at least in the in the early days, some of the attacks were starting to turn violent and journalists that were out covering the protests were in physical danger. They were being arrested when they shouldn't have been or you know, having run-ins with police or others that were doing crowd control. And so I think we are in some ways seeing the manifestation of the years of vitriol against the media coming to play in real life now as journalists are covering these protests. You know, I'm really glad you bring that up because I think maybe the media is a little bit reluctant to cover itself too much or to be accused of that. But that was a huge story because that is what authoritarian governments do. They arrest the media, they hassle the media, they harass them. They're subject to violence. Right. And what was going on at some of these rallies was horrified. And you know, the only one that really got much publicity was when a uh, Australian TV crew got attacked in, in some way in Australia, raised the issue and made a diplomatic stink out of it. But you know, that was really disturbing. I agree with you, Jenna, that that is a consequence of what's been building with three and a half years of calling them essentially enemies of the state, which yeah, too is an authoritarian Enemies of language. the people. Which enemy is, of the people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. And so this leads to, I think, the question I was going to ask before about which has to do with mask wearing during the pandemic. I think this is perhaps a symptom of whether it's it's our fractured media environment or political polarization. You guys can maybe talk about that. But the question is, what is the lack of consensus on mask wearing and other public health precautions related to COVID-19 say about the health and future of democracy in the U.S.? About yeah, why, why don't I start there? Because we did a 
COVID-related poll in early April. So it was pretty early on in, in all of this. And even then, we were starting to detect a clear partisan split on masks and also some uh, other kinds of demographic splits on it, too. So it wasn't only that Democrats were a lot more comfortable with mask wearing than Republicans were, but minorities were actually supportive of wearing masks and also in some ways afraid of wearing masks, feeling like it was making them look threatening and that they were, were feeling somewhat frightened by having to wear masks. What seems to have happened though, you know, and then when the president, I think this is really critical too to this, that when the president made it clear that not only was he not going to wear a mask, but that he wasn't even going to really support or model any kind of mask wearing, including the people around him, well, that sends a very clear message in a highly partisan, in a highly polarized environment to your supporters that it's okay not to wear a mask. I mean, we've seen this happen with all kinds of issues. You know, polling, for example, on partisan feelings towards Russia changed dramatically after Trump, where suddenly Republicans are becoming much more supportive of Russia, where they had always not been at all supportive of Russia. So you take cues from the head of the party that are very important. So I think it has a lot to do with it. And quite frankly, I think it's a disturbing statement about our politics. If you accept the science that mask wearing will be very helpful and get us out of this, which brings us to a whole other issue, which is a general dismissal of the science. Remember Fauci? Remember the task force? No, I, I mean, the singular moment that speaks to what you're saying, Michael, is when Trump was having a press conference and there was a journalist asking him a question who had a mask on. Right, and he asked for him to take it off. Him to take it off. And the journalist said, no, I'm going to leave it on. I'll just speak it louder. Politically correct. Right. He said, oh, so you're going to be politically correct, huh? Yeah. Which is to say that not only are we going to denigrate science or ignore science or ignore the facts as we know them about this global pandemic, we are going to caricaturize this behavior in the already extant partisans division, right? If you're politically correct, you are Trump's enemy. You are Trump supporters' enemy. And therefore, anything you do, I am going to disavow and at minimum dislike and disparage, if not disavow. And so what happened with wearing masks? It just fit right into the extent partisan divisions, the polarization that's already part of our democracy. Also, I thought probably more important was where the task force said they were recommending masks and Trump said, I'm not going to wear one, but Mm -hmm. you can do it if you want. And the idea that he keeps presenting it as a choice really sends out a mixed message. So I suspect that where we are is kind of where we're going to be. And that is that they're trying to kind of steer the attention away from the coronavirus. And we're just going to kind of accept this sort of level. We've just leveled off at such a high rate. And I think it's we're just going to accept that high rate. I do think that the fact that this is a problem, it is not a problem in other democracies. And the reason it's not a problem in other democracies is that the leadership in those democracies did not or were united in a common message. And they modeled that and they transcended partisanship with it. And so I have to lay most of this at the feet of the president because he went out of his way to disparage the idea of wearing a mask. Then it became 
a question that was part of identifying or disagreeing with the president. And yeah, once not that all. happened, we were doomed. We were doomed. Yeah. The president and some of the state governors. Yeah. yeah all right. But, but yeah. everyone, without exception, I think I would be hard pressed to identify any governor that did not wear a mask who was not in some fundamental way a Trumpian. Right. So this, I think you bringing up other countries gets to a different question that we got. Actually, this listener very politely said to us that we focus a lot on the U.S. on this show. It's you know where we're based, where we're all kind of most comfortable, I think, in, in, in terms of our knowledge and our expertise, where our guests mostly come from, et cetera. And our passports. But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But this listener was wondering, is there anything beyond what we've said about the leader of the countries or other aspects of other liberal democracies that the U.S. can learn from, thinking about places like Canada, Australia, Germany, they've had a much better response to COVID, but they also are federal systems. Mm -hmm. Right. So two ideas in there, right? The one of liberal democracies. And if you compare, say, the U.S. with the EU, the EU is far more successful than the U.S. has been. But the interesting thing about the three countries you just mentioned, of course, is that they're also federal systems. Mm -hmm. And as we talked about in our federalism episodes, the president really switched on a dime on this at one point from the whole wartime idea to suddenly I'm not responsible. I'm pushing this down to the governors and I'll let the governors do it. And we'll get 50 different responses and we'll, we'll sort of see where that goes. But other federal systems responded in a very different kind of way, where even those states or whatever they might call their, their smaller units were generally following the guidelines that were coming down from the central government. They weren't running their own course. Now, part of this, I think, is that these systems are not nearly as polarized. And I mean, do keep in mind that the president sort of partisanized this issue right at the beginning so that that became a big piece of this. And that did not happen in other countries. You also had much more adherence to the science. In Germany, they're led by a scientist. Mm -hmm. And so she had, right, Merkel's a chemist, mm -hmm. I believe. So mm -hmm. she yeah. had no, no problem following the science. In these other countries that you're talking about, there was much more. And, and keep in mind that the civil service in these countries is different. It's more established. It's more respected. It's not as politicized. And much more, I think, was turned over to them in terms of setting guidelines that are then going to be supported by all levels of government. There, there's so many reasons that I think that we had a largely unsuccessful effort in this country. I like this question because I do think it focuses in on part of it, which has to do with the whole federal aspect of the U.S. Yeah, but, but what's interesting to me, Michael, is that not one of your answers, all of which I agree with, have anything to do with differences between our federalism and the federalism of Germany or Canada. It has to do oh, with- Oh, no, no, no. I do think it does. No, no. Like, I think what I'm saying is that within those other federal systems, the lower, the subnational levels of government basically acceded to what was coming out of the central government as a set of recommendations and behavior. And so you didn't have this kind of wide variance. You didn't have where you've got a Republican governor who wants Trump to be happy coming up with solutions that were clearly suboptimal in terms of stopping the spread of the epidemic. So it's how we decided to respond within the federal system. I, These I, other countries, I, they gave the national government more power. And we could have done that here too, that's but Trump chose argument. not to take it. Well, let me just take yeah. another attack at it because I don't think, 
I mean, my argument would be that the structural differences are almost epiphenomenal compared to the cultural differences. The United States is, I think, and you could certainly argue, the most libertarian country on the planet. And the most individualistic, the less sense of communal, of you know, some kind of common good and common responsibilities. And so when you have a condition that requires common action, a united front against a single enemy, it is just harder to do that in a libertarian country. I don't think that these libertarian dimensions are always going to overwhelm any other kinds of dimensions of American political culture. And, you know, you have to go back a long way, but none of this happened with the beginning of World War II, right? You had every factory in America say, okay, we got to start making planes now or tanks or bombs or supplies for uniforms or whatever it was. It happened and it happened within weeks after Pearl Harbor. And so the idea that this is beyond the pale of American culture is simply not true. Now, maybe we've gone so far from the attack on Pearl Harbor to now that the seed corn of our culture is gone. And that's an argument that may be worth making. But it is true that within American culture, those resources were there anyway. Right. Well, two more questions here. This next one also talks about speaking of problems. This listener has been struck by, of course, all the murders and the you know, police violence we, we've seen in, in recent weeks and months, but also about the protests that we've seen. And I don't know that this is a question as much as a comment to see what you guys think, but this person said that they're struck by the hard work of democracy that we talk about on the show quite often shouldn't have to be so hard. Hmm. And wondering what you made of that and then what the path forward is to move from protests in the street to more specific policy changes and and those kind of things. Yeah. Well, you know, the American political system is designed to be very hard and slow to change. That was built into the system from the beginning. Federalism is part of that. Separation of powers is part of that. And as we talked about with Francis Lee a little bit in a polarized system, it becomes even tougher. So getting dramatic change is a hard and a long process in this system. And protest, as we've seen, especially around civil rights issues, is a critical component of that. I took the question a different way. And, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that should protest be this hard? And the answer to that is unequivocally, no. We have a First Amendment. You have a uh, right to speak. You have a right to assemble. You have a right to uh, redress grievances to your government. Those are all in the First Amendment. And the idea that if people are exercising those rights, that the government has a right to make those hard or to step in the way of those is just fundamentally unconstitutional and un-American. And so the answer I would give to that person is, you're damn right it shouldn't be that hard. If you are breaking windows and protest and burning things, that's a different story. But you absolutely have the right to do all those things. And if and to the degree that government stops you, from the peaceable exercise of those rights, that is unconstitutional and un-American. Yeah, I think Chris's interpretation of the question is a good one. And yeah. 
And, right. you know, we saw across the states and cities very different models for how protest occurs. And in some, it was very obvious that the authorities were very accommodating towards protesters and let protesters do what they basically wanted to do, which was largely peaceful. In other places, there was a much more antagonistic and militaristic kind of response to it. And of course, I when they talked about calling out federal troops, then you're raising it to an entirely different yeah. level than, you know, even National Guard. The thing about National Guard troops is National Guard troops are from the community. They're from the state. They're run by the governor or they're, they're commanded by the mm-hmm. governor. Mm-hmm. But bringing in army troops is a whole different story. And that was that would have been quite an escalation. True. But that it had gotten that far suggested to me that there's something really broken right now in terms of the relationship between the military and civilian arms of government. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's never it's should a, have gotten that far. It's the same break, the same pathology that just manifested in every dimension of American life right now. And it's another institution that's going to come out of this administration wounded. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So that brings it all back around. We started talking about institutions at the very beginning. We talked about polarization. So we have one final question here. This person asked you, given all of these things, which they articulated in their question, and we've also just, just been talking about, are you optimistic for the future of Western democracy? And my first thought is that this person doesn't know you guys very well <laughs> to be asking a question like that. So I guess that your thoughts on that, but then also... I think we also like to end with a what can people do sort of thing. So as we're trying to marshal all this energy from the protest into longer term changes, thinking about what's coming up this fall, what should people be, be thinking about? Well, uh, can I start on that? I had this feeling in 2017 and certainly in the 2018 election and then watching what was going on recently that there has been somewhat of a democratic awakening among the American people. And that's a healthy thing. On the other hand, there's been a lot of damage to institutions and norms. And when norms, for example, are shattered, they are not easily brought back. When institutions are broken, they are not easily restored. So I think that there is a lot of serious damage that we can be talking about. But also, I think voting turnout, if people can vote, will be very high. It's a big if with the epidemic going on. But if they can vote... I think voting turnout will be very high, and I think that's always a healthy sign for democracy. And I also think that, you know, as we talked about, I believe with uh, Vinita Yadav, that there's been something of a uh, counter-reaction to some of the populists. Certainly, Bolasaro in Brazil is going to have some explaining to do, given their response to coronavirus. And, you know, I'm not an expert on Brazilian politics by any stretch of the imagination, but those are the kind of circumstances that could lead to a counter-reaction. Okay, so I was, when, the first time I taught the Democratic Erosion class, students asked me that on the last day, a version of that question. And basically, my answer was that you guys, i.e., young people, are the best of a series of bad bets. <laughs> and they're like trying to get their heads around that. And after they figure it out, they're like, hey, wait a minute, that's not good at all. And I don't know how much I have changed my mind about that, but I absolutely agree with Michael that we are seeing a reaction. E.J. Dion called them the democratic antibodies, which is a metaphor that is right right these now. Days. Right. And I think he's right that you are seeing this kind of like reaction that is more than just 
we don't like what you said or we don't like where things are going. It's more, no, we, we have something here that is worth defending and we're not going to just stay disconnected while all these things are assaulted. Yeah. Um, the other thing I would say is that it is not unusual for American society or for that matter, any society to develop in these kind of dramatic moments. And then there's this kind of shock and there's a kind of reconstitution along a different moral framework. And of course, the 60s is the obvious example. But, you know, you can absolutely say that post 64, 65, you have a different and a more moral American society than you did before. And you could be justified in hoping that as a result of this tumult, this sense of unease and dispiritedness and animosity, that it's going to lead to a new reforming recommitment to American society. It'll be different. A lot of people will hate it, but the majority will say, no, this is what we want going forward. Yeah, a couple couple thoughts there. I mean, sure, post-1964 was obviously an expansion of rights for African-Americans and voting rights. But the response to the 1968 race riots and disorder was the Nixon Southern strategy. And actually, I think a real law and order sort of crackdown and a race-based politics that has not been particularly healthy. I do think we're in a very, very different place in 1968. And I'm uncomfortable, actually, with a lot of the comparisons that are being made between now and the 1968 protests and riots for a variety of reasons. I mean, the diversity of the protesters, the fact that city governments now are not run by Mayor Daley, but are run largely (laughs) or often by African-American mayors, the fact that actually police departments in many cities have reformed quite a bit and are led by minority police chiefs and uh, women police chiefs. And so I think in a lot of ways, it's a very different time. But you know, one thing that I think is really going to be pivotal in where we go after this has to do with this upcoming election. Because in some ways, we're seeing some states really reveal their true colors here. We're in the middle of an epidemic where obviously voting is going to be very difficult. We saw what happened in Wisconsin. We saw what happened in Georgia. We know, we absolutely know that voting is going to be difficult. But states are responding in exactly the opposite direction. They are refusing to make it easy to absentee vote. They are refusing to make it easy to vote by mail. The president's going off to the postal service, which is essential to voting by mail. I think if this election comes out across as being illegitimate because of the difficulties that people had in voting, then we're going to be off in a very different kind of direction. And we have talked on many different shows here about the problems of elections being run by elected officials in the states. That's the system we're stuck with. But states now are going to show their true colors. And I think that some of the outcomes could be really disturbing. You know, I mean, I but you want I, me to I, end on an optimistic note. I, well, right? no, I mean, you know, we'll be here talking about it, come what may, I suppose. Unless we're <laughs> unless we're thrown here. in jail. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> well, and I think it's hard not to be heartened by the fact yeah. that so many people have been protesting. Mm-hmm. They've been doing it in masks. They've been doing it without violence. The emphasis on rioters and looters, that was in the earliest days of the protests. I haven't heard of one single Antifa person being arrested, even though there were all these accusations of it. 
And then as the protests developed, you know, it almost became like it's Saturday, Sunday afternoon. There's nothing else to do these days. And so let's take the family down and protest with our masks on. And they've taken on a very celebratory kind of flavor that I think speaks pretty positively to where much of the country is right now. Yeah, I mean, I think we should just we should stop at that. I think that's about as optimistic as we're going to get. Well, (laughs) you know, nobody knows. Right. I mean, the, the point is that the future is in a tumult and we don't know how it's all going to play out. But that does not mean that the positive outcome is impossible, nor does it relieve any one of us of the responsibility we have to try to make sure that that outcome is positive. All right. I think we should bring it in, close this episode, this season. Thank you to our listeners who sent in questions and and those of you who I've been in touch with and who send us emails throughout the year. Keep those coming. We always love to hear from you. And we listen to them and we take them seriously, right? I mean, that's the other thing. So we are going to be off for, I don't know, about six weeks or so. We'll, we'll return. we get back from Ensenada and, and you know, <laughs> get sick of margaritas. No, yeah. Sorry, no, 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 no. Uh, in that time, we're going to be rebroadcasting some of the episodes from our back catalog. We'll also be highlighting some shows from the Democracy Group Podcast Network. You can check all of those out. But... Yeah, we will be back with new episodes in mid-August and we will see where the world is then, guys. How about it? Yeah. Let's let's hope for the best, plan for the worst. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. So from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy and the Democracy Works team, I'm Jenna Spinelli. I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Michael Berkman. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. Have a good summer, everybody. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Episodes are engineered by Andy Grant and Craig Johnson, edited by Chris Kugler, Jen Bortz, and Mark Stitzer, and reviewed by Emily Reddy. Our interns this semester are Nicole Grayson and Stephanie Crane, two seniors in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State. Democracy Works is part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts all about civic engagement, civil discourse, and democracy. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our member shows and access deep dive playlists on topics like gerrymandering and money in politics that are curated from across the network. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. It's an election year. And if you are a listener of the show, that means voting and maybe even campaigning for your preferred candidates. But supporters of democracy like you also believe in the value of working together with people across differences to strengthen our country. A new nonpartisan program called Uniting for Action America provides just that opportunity. The program is open to U.S. residents over the age of 18 from urban, suburban, and rural areas with wide-ranging political views. You'll have the chance to build relationships, strengthen your problem-solving skills, explore different perspectives, and take action to strengthen our country and our democracy. The registration deadline for Uniting for Action America is July 31st. 
If you're interested, you can sign up at youareaction.org slash America. Again, that's youareaction.org slash America. And the registration deadline is July 31st. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.